Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Rebecca Meyett. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and to learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Today, our guest is internationally respected futures thinker, foresight practitioner and educator, Dr. Peter Haywood. Peter was Program Director of the Strategic Foresight Masters Program at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia from 2005 to 2017. Peter's PhD studies were undertaken in the development of individual foresight. He has also published journal articles regarding the intersection of systems theory and individual psychology with the practice of foresight in organisations. Peter's twin goals are the promotion of capacity in foresight in individuals and the use of foresight in organisational contexts. He feels strongly that while humanity does face challenges in the future, the resourcefulness, creativity and determination of people can create profound change that lead to better futures for all. Welcome to FuturePod, Peter. Thanks, Rebecca. Good to be here. Great. So um, to start off with, it would be great for the listeners to hear about your story. How did you actually get into the field of futures and foresight? Who were your mentors or inspirations and how did you actually develop your practice? Um, I suppose it's got to be said that uh, the way I think about foresight now, some some 20 years on, is probably not how I was thinking about it when I started the field. So if you say... If, if it's about where did I start, I think I was fairly typical of um, people who came to Foresight, certainly fairly typical for my students. And what I saw was I was a technically trained person who was by nature curious about things and really regarded you got better by simply thinking more clearly through problems. So I was probably a classic problem solver. And so I think I came to Futures and Foresight as a person trying to solve problems. The problems I were, I were involved in, in um, trying to solve were the problems of complexity in large organisations. Um, I was working for the taxation office. It was a very sophisticated organisation, struggling with big issues about economics, social behaviour. And... They were embracing different ways of thinking. And so I kind of got in on the coattails of a lot of people who were trying to drive change and drive thinking. So my early mentors were people like Richard Hames, who was actually working in the tax office, and he was one of the first real futurists, um, although Richard, I'm sure, wouldn't say he's a futurist, that I got up close and personal with, and I saw Richard work. Richard was introducing thinking systems into the tax office. I did a scenarios project with Richard, a very large scenarios project, and so actually he introduced me to scenario thinking. And also, at the time, we had a lot of consultants in, like um, 
Richard Borden and Bruce McKenzie, who taught systems thinking. And so they were kind of my two influences that led me to foresight. They were all just trying to find ways to more clearly think through complex situations. The thing I would say, though, Rebecca, is that I think what it was, I was, I was of the view that there was always a solution to whatever complexity you faced. Um, and at the time, I just saw future thinking or foresight as just being another one of those things you use to solve complex problems. Mm. Great. And and you studied as well. You did some some formal study in the yeah. In the um, I mean, as I said, I was I was a fairly typical you know, technical operator who'd moved into management and moved into projects. I was always just curious about you know trying to trying to do things better and use technology and change and work with people. And I was after any good ideas. I'm, so I was actually reading the books of Richard Slaughter at the time mm. without necessarily thinking I was actually a foresight person. And uh, I met another practitioner, Jan Lee Martin, who uh, told me that Richard was starting a master's course. Yes, so I was reading Richard Slaughter's work and I met... Jan Lee Martin in Sydney and Jan told me that Richard was starting a course in Foresight uh, at Swinburne in 2001. So I managed to get myself into the uh, start of the Masters of Foresight. I was in the first class, first day, mm. along with three other people. Peter, thank you. Um, that That's great in terms of understanding your um, the points of entry into into the foresight and the field and and some of your key um, mentors and inspirations along the way. Um, what would be really great to to focus on now is is how did you actually develop your practice once you started to move from that space of being a student of foresight into practicing foresight? Yes, it's uh, it's to be said that. When I, when I engaged with the academic side of Foresight and I came in contact with another group of people who were tremendously influential, people like Richard Slaughter, Joe Voros, uh, Sahail Intalia, and I suddenly realised there was a whole intellectual domain that instead of me just being a pragmatic kind of consultant type person who was trying to solve problems, I suddenly encountered this real... Um, deep inquiry. Um, I'm familiar, uh, another person whose name springs to mind is Zia Sada, the editor of Futures. I mean, yeah, serious intellectuals who ask deeply profound questions, not just about how do I get better at something, but what exactly is going on and why are we doing and where are we heading? And so that was something I didn't necessarily come to foresight thinking I needed to do but the further I stayed in the space and the more I engaged with the intellectuals and academics at Swinburne that I started to ask those fundamental questions of of myself and purpose because that's where that's where the foresight inquiry went so so my practice I mean when I started I was still a very pragmatic person trying to solve problems um, and at the same time I also met other practitioners like Susan Oliver, um, who was another tremendous influence on my on the development of my practice, because Susan was a um, a corporate futurist, even on boards, and so I got to you know do scenario projects with Susan. I think I was helpful to her because I I understood a bit of system mapping, and she liked doing her work with people who could who who could draw systems. And 
And so I saw Susan operating without, I mean, she's fundamentally still asking the same profound questions, but she's trying to make a difference in organisations. And so my practice was really a dance between deep inquiry and the pragmatics of trying to help people deal with complexity. And as a practitioner, I suppose, I kind of flipped between those two poles. I didn't find many consulting opportunities that it was possible to have a deep inquiry about the meaning of life. Um, but sometimes that was the that was kind of the entry point as to what could help an organisation. Mm. But I, as I should say, the big change in my practice, Rebecca, was that I started, at the time I was doing the PhD, I started to give up on the notion that there were answers to all problems. Mm. And the thing that started and I think has continued in my practice going forward is there are issues arising through complexity and uncertainty that we don't have an answer for. And it's okay not to have an answer. It then comes down to what do you do when you haven't got an answer for something? And that has kind of been where my kind of practice has gone into the space. Um, I know it sounds strange to have a practice of what do you do when you haven't got an answer, but there are things that we don't know what to do, mm. and yet we need to do something. Mm. Peter, so you, you mentioned um, systems thinking as a, as a tool that you used um, with Susan Oliver specifically. What what tools became your favourites for helping people to explore possible futures and why? It would be great for you to um, speak to some of the tools that you've used and sort of your go-tos to help to open up people's thinking of futures and exploring futures. Certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, I was originally exposed to systems approaches in the tax office um, and, in, and in the tax office I was uh, taught approaches like uh, Chris Arduous and Donald Schoen's uh, organisational learning, um, a Peter Senge's learning organisation and the fifth discipline, uh, Stafford Beer and his work with cybernetics, um, and also the soft systems methodologies of Peter Checkland. And so these were all the things that I was exposed to in the tax office in trying to address their real problems of trying to manage compliance, design systems, um, and uh, support the revenue system for Australia. So when I came to work in the foresight space, I suddenly realised that the things that I'd learnt, like, for example, with, with uh, Chris Arduous and his work on single and double loop learning, which is another approach to foresight. I mean, single loop learning says we have a view of the world. Based on it, we determine actions. And then we get results. And a single loop is where you go back and re-examine your strategy based on your results. And as Chris Arduous said, well, that's fine, except what happens if your view of the world is wrong? Mm. Uh, no amount of single loop learning is going to address if you've actually got the wrong view of the world. And so Chris Arduous said, you need to do double loop learning and re-examine how you see the world and because your actions come from how you see the world. Now, that's an approach that was completely mm. consistent with the way foresight would simply talk about worldviews or how we see mm. the world as how we create our problems and how we create our solutions. Mm. Um, in Peter Senge's case, with learning organisations and archetypes, um, again, the things that happen with that 
make perfect sense for how you understand so many system archetypes in futures. And I'd even say that Senge's work goes back to things like limits to growth and that work as well, that we that we do have these, you know, what's the present and the future to some extent follow a set of archetypes. And we can obviously disturb and change the archetypes. Mm. But so, so as I say, systems to me was a natural progression into foresight. I found that, you know, most of the approaches, whether it's mapping systems, talking in terms of information control through cybernetics, um, using uh, Chris Arduous's single and double loop learning, to me, they were all consistent ways and not dissimilar to foresight. So they were a ready way for me to come into the space. Mm. Now, foresight, of course, asks some quite singular questions that actually make it quite a distinctive field, particularly about this notion of time and the notion of whose future we're talking about. Because one of the things in futures that's really, really important and seminal is this moral dimension of exactly whose future are we are we talking about? And we can say, well, I'm just talking about mine. And the answer is, well, is that good enough? Maybe you think about the generation of people who are coming after you, or maybe you think about the people whose perspective are, are not part of it. Mm. Um, but yeah, as I say, for me, you know, my practice was heavily based in systems because that's what I used as a as a set of thinking tools. Mm. And then, and most of them transferred across to foresight quite comfortably. Mm. And then foresight then laid a further level of... Um, social responsibility, critical thinking to those tools. Mm. That's great, Peter. And and in terms of as your career progressed from the education or into the education space, were there any any new tools that came to mind that you started to use um, that were different from your time in in the tax office? I suppose the thing... I honestly believe a lot of my practice came from the classroom itself Mm. by watching people like me trying to find ideas, models, tools and so forth that help them, whatever they're trying to do, whether they're trying to run a more profitable business, write better policy for government, create social change. I mean, I saw... I saw myself in some microcosm of all my students and I saw the things that they gravitated to. And I suppose the tools early on that I used probably the most were probably scenario tools. Um, and I was, I was particularly taken by scenarios as a methodology. But increasingly, what scenarios were, as the famous Keys van der Heiden book on scenarios um, said, is around conversation. Scenarios are a great conversational tool and probably that's the one thing that I learnt from the classroom and then eventually became central to my external practice is the ability to create and sustain useful conversations for people. Useful conversations about the situation they're in, useful conversations about what they wish to create and useful conversations about how they might get to the future they wish to create. And of course, that was also the way that we taught foresight. We didn't teach foresight as a kind of pedagogical, where someone told you what to think or told you what the... was. The classroom was conversational. I saw the students readily move into 
a conversational way to use foresight in order to for them to learn it. And guess what? Um, for clients and people trying to wrestle with complexity and uncertainty, a good conversation structured with appropriate information is one of the most useful things I've found to do as a practitioner. Mm. That's uh, interesting, Peter, around um, scenario planning and, and the conversations around scenarios and that being really valuable in organisations. Why do you think they are so valuable? Scenarios are a technical device. And I think people can just start off saying, well, your job for doing scenarios is to get the scenario right or correct or something like that. But there's actually a lot more going on in scenarios and as I, as I became to learn and what, why I got interested in scenarios as a conversational tool is that in organisations it's really hard to talk about the past and the present without power being present because organisations have things that you can't talk about. If there are successes, people protect the, their successes. If there have been failures, they're hidden. Um, you know, so the past and present are very contested in organisations. And if you want to have an honest, open conversation about those things, they're very hard to do. The beauty of having a conversation about the future is that nobody owns it. Nobody can claim it. They actually can't. They can't authorise a particular future. And so what I found with scenarios, or really any conversation about the future, is that everyone's got an opinion. And it lets people who ordinarily wouldn't have a chance to say, say things, and it has people who might regard themselves as being the experts or the keepers of knowledge, it's just their opinion. Mm. And so, and that's what I got very excited by watching that the future is a very, can be a very uh, democratising place for people who don't normally get to to talk around the past present and that's and I think that's also why Gies van der Heiden called his book The Art of Strategic Conversations because properly structured and supported and designed I think one of the most profound things that you can do in an organisation in a group setting is is let them have a important conversation about where we've come from where we are where we wish to go and, mm. um, and that's probably the core of my practice as it currently stands now. Peter, so in terms of the future itself and from your own perspective, what are you seeing? What, what sort of future do you see in, in say, 30 years' time? Um, what are some of the forces that you think are shaping the world that we're living in and how can we actively help to shape a preferred future? It's a big question. I, was, I mean, I'm a person who, uh, I, like a lot of people in the future space, um, I do, I continue to study history. Uh, it's fairly typical for people who stay in the space for a long time. While the future is interesting, the past is also an, an interesting process. Someone famous, or I can't think of their name, said, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. 
Um, so there's something around if people w want to work in the future space, then learning learning history is appropriate um, just as, as a kind of way of understanding what happens through time. So again, I look at, you know, my first answer to the question is the historical perspective of what are we living in in this particular moment? Um, and at one level, if you want to go to the level of the geopolitical level, we're living through another of those civilizational empire transitions. We've had a dominant trans, you know, we've had a dominant American empire that once upon a time replaced the English empire. And maybe we're going through a situation where the Chinese empire is, or the Asian empire is starting to replace the American empire. So I think at one level, it's fascinating to watch, watch what's going on at that level of, you know, the geopolitics. Another thing that I think is really we live, we could be living through is we're starting to bump into the, into the limits, and you might be familiar with limits to growth. But what I'm talking about the limits there, we might be getting to peak people, meaning mm. there's a point where, as many biologists and and people have said that there, there, you know, a point will be reached on a finite planet where the human footprint will start to impact on everything we do on the planet and we're possibly starting to see the human footprint now starting to impose its own level of limits on the biosphere the physical system access to you know yeah you know, we're seeing shortages in materials and that kind of thing we're also seeing migration of people which is not a, a new idea history tells us there have been migrations but we're starting to see migrations happen and those migrations are now having a knock-on effect into political systems um, what seems to be in retreat in some ways are the kind of grand notions of universal ethics and, and us all coming together as a global village. And at one level, we've also got a rise of parochialism, um, you know, where people are saying, I'm okay, keep them out. So, and, I mean, and again, I see that as being another one of those consequences of lots of people starting to compete for space and being able to move globalization i mean globalization has been a again an historical process over many thousands of years but maybe there's a pushback on globalization so again i'm for me as i talk about the future in the next 30 years certainly is i think it's in flux i think there's a, there's a you know there's a number of things i'm paying attention to i'm certainly looking at the political i'm looking at the issue of how the public regards their political systems and what they want from their political systems. And I see that being a very contested space. And of course, then you go to the what's happening at the biological level, which appears to be, we, we appear to be in a another large extinction phase. If you look at what appears to be happening to species, at the energy level, we're possibly looking at a transition from energy systems, which we know from history tells us if if the energy system changes, everything changes. Mm. And then to lay over at the top of that, technology. And what are things like artificial intelligence and that kind of stuff going to do? Um, so as I said, I don't really see the future as anything in particular. What I see it as being is a contest. And of course, if you talk about the future is, well, whose future are we talking about? I mean, it might be a theory might say, look at the Western world and what they could be showing is the signs that they're distressed about the future because they think the future sounds threatening to them. But perhaps if I'm coming from East Asia 
um, Africa. I'm saying the future looks pretty exciting. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, this notion of the contest, mm. this notion mm. of it, it, it's not about someone, someone has to get better at someone else's expense. Mm. But that understanding that people are seeing the future as something of opportunity for them. And others are saying, I see future as concern. I see future as loss for me and people like me. And that's how I kind of see the 30 years. And that's what I'm watching is I'm, I'm, I'm watching and observing the contest. And then so bringing it back to individuals, how do you think people can take the reins and help to influence or move themselves in a direction of a preferred future mm. for them. Wendell Bell had a great piece that he said that as futures thinkers, we need three things that he, th he says are really, really important. And <laughs> I can't argue with Wendell. One is we should learn consequential thinking and really practice and learn consequential thinking because every action we take and every inaction we take has consequence. And so as part of our deciding to do something or deciding not to do something, spend some time to run the consequences that emerge from that. So big part of it. Second thing Wendell said was to be skeptical of our own views, meaning our views are, while they might seem terrific now, <laughs> um, they're probably gonna change. Uh, so we should have ideas of what we think is good, wrong, right, yes, but be sceptical that it's probably going to change. It's Something's going to come along. So we don't hold our opinions too tightly. We're prepared to say, oh, this, is the, this is what I think works now, but don't be surprised if someone comes along or some piece of information comes across that says, look, I'm wrong, and mm. be prepared to say you're wrong and change. And the third one is have a moral dimension to your actions and your purpose and all that really means is apart from just this is what I think this is what I'm going to do this is what I think are the consequences of the things I wish to do but to to ask yourself and give yourself the permission to have a moral reason for your existence so what is it that your life and your actions are trying to achieve and contribute and show to other people um, we shouldn't see moral. We shouldn't see it as a burden to have a moral dimension to our actions. I think it's one of the most um, humanising things we can do, which is to understand that people watch us, people see, people learn from us, and so giving some moral dimension to our lives, along with the first two, um, I kind of think are the kind of core ways for how you manage through this notion well we don't know what's going to happen but there's a lot of stuff that could happen and so then it comes down to well this is kind of how i think things are going this is what i really think is the best thing for me to do and when i kind of work it out as a moral set of actions i'm, I'm kind of happy that i'd be held to account for doing that I kind mm. Of... Mm. peter futures thinking and foresight itself is quite a a different or um, unknown field to, to many people. How do you go about talking about foresight and explaining foresight to someone who hasn't been exposed to the word, the term, the field? I've got a couple of ways to do it, Rebecca. One which is not mine. I borrowed this one from Joe Voros. If I had a person who understood how history worked, 
that we collect data about the history, we write up, you know, we describe the history based on what we find about it, then what Joe says is, well, foresight is like history, but rather than using historical data, we use prospective data, which is a very elegant way. If a person understands history, they go, yeah, well, that makes sense. The data about the future is prospective data rather than received data. The one I use probably most commonly, though, is um, based on based on another model, but it's based on the model of um, of hope theory from Chris Snyder. And someone said, and so when someone says to me, "What is it you do?" and I I say to them, "Well, there's actually two things that I can do to help someone. There's two th- and there's two ways that foresight can help you in your life and help you in your organisation. One, it can help you with pathways. If you know where you want to go." And foresight is a great way to explore options to get there. It's a great way to see ways of getting there, to explore different ways of getting there, to imagine the future and see different pathways to get there. So foresight is an exploratory process around pathways. And that's really useful for people who need to find different ways of getting somewhere. The other thing, though, which is distinctive about foresight is this thing around purpose. Pathways are no use to you if you don't know where you want to go. And the other thing foresight, I think, delivers in spades is the ability to actually ask the question of what is my purpose? What do I wish to achieve? Um, what, what is my meaning? What is it that I wish to contribute? And the thing that emerges from purpose, from the purpose conversation, is the energy to create the path. Um, another colleague of mine, Nita Cherry, talks about leadership as the mobilizing of human energy and one of the great ways to release human energy in my opinion is to have the purpose conversation if people find their purpose which you never have it just you just borrow it for a while then if you have purpose then you generally have agency you generally have energy to seek it and those two things the energy to create purpose and the pathways that you follow um, are the kind of two ways that I kind of couch foresight for people. And people generally find something in there that would be useful. So Peter, I'm interested in your PhD um, and the study of the development of foresight in individuals. Can you please talk a bit about the ability of individuals to grow their foresight, their own foresight? Yes. My PhD stemmed out of a, uh, an observation um, that when I was around, you know, in, when I was starting foresight and starting the PhD around 2002, 2003, I was often attending information nights for prospective students. And so we had, you know, the the university had its MBA program and its MEI program and marketing programs and that kind of thing. And we had this thing called the Foresight Program. And I was struck by the number of people who, when they walked up to me and wanted to talk about this program called the Foresight Program, very early in the conversation, they would say something like, I don't want to do an MBA. And it, it struck me as unusual that as a reason to do a course, they were defining the course as what they didn't want to do. 
and it was a particular thing, and it, it was repeat behaviour. I, I, yeah, and it struck me that there's something going on here when people come to this thing called foresight. What is it? But at the same time, their compass is being set by the line of saying, "I don't know what I want to do, but I know what I don't want to do." And so that kind of that was a that kind of sat with me as a kind of researcher as to what is it going on because people are clearly looking for something. And foresight can be anything, depending on what it is you want. But I was always struck by this notion of what is it with people and why were they defining it as what it wasn't, what they, what they hoped it wasn't rather than what it was. And so in my own, in my own research, I, I kind of theorized what that was about and I collected data um, on a number of dimensions um, and also I read heavily about what people thought foresight was and how foresight developed. Before I talk about my results, I might just come back to some of the things that I noticed in the literature. One of the most important things that I think is fairly common to what foresight is, in my PhD I called it the end of rational certainty. Um, certainty seems rational. It makes rational sense to believe that something is known, fixed and doable. And at one level that makes sense and another level it makes no sense because it makes no sense given uncertainty complexity pure just serendipity to believe in certainty so one of the things that many people have talked about the futures and foresight capacity is this ability to just put down the notion of something being certain and to be comfortable with uncertainty and that's a big part of just developing anyone's practice is this notion of just you have to learn to lean into not knowing. It, yes, it sounds scary, but the absence is the denial of uncertainty, which to me makes no sense. So for me, a big part of developing practice is just lean into what you're not sure about. Lean into what you don't agree with. Rather than push away the things that don't match our view of the world, move towards the things that don't match our view of the world because it'll probably enrich and, and change how we see the world. And that's, that's not a new idea. It's, it's, it's not even a particularly foresightful idea. But it, it's a fairly common one. Another one is the ability to, to take the broadest possible view, which again is not, is not something that particularly came out of my research, but this notion of what's called, you know, the balcony view, the helicopter view, mm. um, you know, whatever situation you are in and trying to understand it, what is the normal response to understand something is to break it down to smaller and smaller parts in order to understand it, which is what you do if you've got something, if you've got a machine which doesn't work, then you tend to break it down well, what's not working and you find the smallest possible part that's not working. Going in the opposite direction seems strange, but it does seem to be one of those core capacities that if you're not sure, yeah, even if you think you know what's going on, draw back. Mm. Look at it in a broader context of mm. keep drawing back, keep drawing back because it changes what you're seeing and how you see things. It takes things that you believe are situated as normal, but if you draw back, you suddenly look at it and say, why is that going on here and not going on there? Why? So it's, a, it's this kind of notion of pulling away to see the most. Mm. 
So those two things alone are just two of the most you know, profound things for developing any foresight practice is mm. the extent to which I am deliberately leaning into things that I'm either uncomfortable about or I'm not sure about or even see or challenging my notions of what is certain. Mm. Almost like I said, a muscles to deal with that. Mm. And the second one is that to whatever is your context, drawback and mm. look at it in a broader context. Mm. You know, if it's mm. local, place it in a broader. If it's national, take it back. Just keep drawing mm. back because there's always a broader context mm. and it does take what you think is important and suddenly says, no, it's a component of something else. It's a mm. it's a dynamic of something else. And the third one um, is the notion of dynamics, mm -hmm. is not seeing things as static. So when you look at something, when you observe something, it's not static. Even though you're seeing it as static, it's not static. It's something, it's moving from a condition to a condition and you're seeing it at a point in time. So trying to look at things as dynamic events rather than you know, a set of, well, this is going on. The answer is no, this is going on or this went on at a point in the past, but what's going to happen in the future? Is the dynamic mm. going to continue? Mm. Mm. In terms of my research, I might just kind of tap that I said, when I went back to studying the why people were talking this way, um, and I was looking at different models of how people thought, then the one that was most sensitive in my research and the one that made sense with people saying, "I don't, know, I don't want to do an MBA," was um, Susan Cook Reuter's work around um, self-development or um, ego development. It's got many terms now. It's now being picked up by the work of Terry O'Fallon. And Susan Cook Reuter was a linguist, so she understood how words work. And what Susan observed about how people develop is we often, if we want to describe a future self, we can only describe a future self in a language that we currently have. And, if, and so if we know what we are, or sorry, if we know what we have been, then we can often only describe ourselves as not being that mm. in order to describe it as something that is new. Mm. And that was my hypothesis that what was happening was people came to Foresight saying, I'm not an MBA person. I'm not an MBA thinker. I'm not mm. an MBA. And so they they didn't have a language for what they were going to become. Mm. Mm. So they described themselves as not being their prior self. Peter, what do you think are, are some of the indicators that a, a person is open and willing to look into their own individual foresight? big one for me, Rebecca, is that a person's actually a bit like those students or potential students who saw themselves as a prior self and talking about a future self. People who, people who are showing signs that they wish to inquire as to what really is going on are kind of... I don't believe foresight is a useful thing to put in front of someone who is not seeking foresight themselves. So, so listening for what I get, listening for a person who's starting to show signs of relaxing certainty. You know, this you know, for a person who's not regarding uncertainty as a mistake 
or an error or a lack of data, but just something that is a natural thing. Um, hearing a person who's naturally starting to draw back to look at a situation in a broader context. Those are the kind of things. And, you just, and again, back to what Susan Cook wrote, it's listening to people's language. What are they saying of themselves in the situation? Are they sounding like they're in an inquiry space? Or are they still in that, I have to fix this and make this go away space? And if they're in the former space, in the, if they seem to be in the sort of inquiring space, and then I think foresight is really useful for them because foresight is quintessentially a form of inquiry. So, so, so the big one for me is, is that, you know, listen for when people are already starting to ask foresightful questions, the beginnings of foresightful questions, mm. and then come forward with, well, you know, can I help you with that? You know, would it be mm. useful if that kind of thing? But it, it certainly is never useful to go along to someone saying to them that I think you need foresight. That's more likely going to get you a smack in the chops than um, mm. actually get them to actually come towards you. Mm. And, and why is it good to have foresight? Why do we need foresight or do we need foresight? Foresight is contextual and situational. You don't need foresight every single waking day of your life. Mm. Uh, the status quo is a wonderful beast and what has worked in the past and has got a fair chance of working in the future. So we need foresight when we are not satisfied with the status quo. We need foresight when we don't really understand why we're doing what it was we thought we should do. So we're starting to have that this used to make sense, now it's starting to not make sense kind of view. And just simply, I have run out of things to try. That I've tried everything I know to deal with a situation. It's not being dealt with. It's mm. not going away. I'm not getting any closer. What do I do next? Then I think foresight is that thing that helps you through that process. Because mm. foresight takes you from a situation the now, the past mm. and the now. Yeah, yeah. And we use the we use the idea of the future in a useful way. Because mm. the future is a wonderful space to explore what you might do, how things could be different. And you can play with it because it hasn't happened. Mm. It's not a place that, you know, we should be as I said, it, it's a very playful space. It's a great place to inquire from. And in that inquiry, come back to my core two points. In that inquiry of the future, we might find a path. And we go, wow, that's the path I want to go down. And also we might find in that future a purpose. And if a purpose calls us or a path is appealing, go for it. Mm. Foresight's been useful. In terms of an example of an everyday person using foresight... Is there an example you can give? Individuals use foresight all the time. Mm. Um, I mean, any effective person who makes decisions, I mean, all, I mean, again, someone famous said, I can't think who it was, but all decisions are about the future. So every decision you make is actually, is actually in its own way a foresightful decision. The question I would say, is it a conscious or an unconscious decision? And... Do you 
do you want the future that that decision is taking you towards? Yes, we make decisions and decisions are about the future, but am I making the decisions in my life that I want to make? Because the decisions I'm making and the decisions I'm not making are creating futures. As I said, if a person is living their life and creating the future they want to create for themselves, fine. I mean, that's what foresight there. But at points in our lives, we start to question why we're doing what we're doing or the things that did float our boats is no longer floating our boats. We start to doubt ourselves, our situation, our purpose effectively. And that's not a bad thing. It's, it's To me, the doubt is not something to be afraid of. It's then to be, well, this is interesting. Um, well, you know, what is my purpose? That that thing that I used to love to do and I get well paid for, it doesn't, it, it's not sounding, it, it's not feeling like this is actually what I'm about. Mm. And when that openness starts to emerge, then you've got to ask the future's question. The thing about foresight, of course, is it's a natural human process individually, but it's not a natural social process, which is why it's a dickens of a process trying to get people to agree on a future. Mm. So one of the great challenges is actually is having shared futures um, because people say, well, actually... I want what I want, the answer is, yeah, but there's things that you need to do with someone else. And so you need to create shared futures. And if it's around sharing the thing we create, collaborating and cooperating, mm. then that's actually a foresight process. And that's, a, in some ways, a more important point than just individual foresight, because people kind of, as Paul Keating said, in the race of life, always back self-interest because you know it's trying 100%. But it's creating shared futures that I think some of the greatest and most useful work in foresight exists. Thank you, Peter. It's been great having a conversation today and um, thank you for sharing your thoughts with the FuturePod community. Thanks, Rebecca. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Rebecca Meat saying goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.